two conversations. There are two people I ought to thank for long ago advice, although it's long past the time when it would be possible to do so. I was of college age from 1965 to 69. The United States involvement in the Vietnam War began before that and lasted longer. When I was in college, full-time college students were deferred from the draft. By my sophomore year, I concluded that this war was a misguided policy and I didn't want to participate. Surely I thought the war would surely wind down by the time I graduated. But it didn't wind down in 1967 or 1968 or 1969. The weight of this looming thing weighed on our college days and gave them an extra layer of unreality. As graduation came around, I had thought a great deal about what to do, but did not find any clear direction. In the weeks before graduation, as a stab at a solution, I decided to enroll in an MA program to qualify myself as a teacher. I did not dream of being a teacher. My earlier plans to go for a PhD in English literature were shelved. High school teachers were still deferred. That meant going to summer school at Colgate in 1969 and the first semester on the Colgate campus that fall. It was a strange program, somewhat of interest, but as it also included education courses, courses there was a lot to just endure. The most useful thing about those courses was how they showed firsthand the misery and stupidity of education courses. Sometime in the spring of 1969, I had the two conversations which, for which I am grateful. As to what matters in such things, a lot depends not so much on what is said, but on whether you are ready to hear it. <clears throat> the first encounter was a friend of my parents by the name of John Toll. Time was ticking down quickly for me. John was a physicist and president of Stony Brook University on Long Island. He made it known through my parents that he would be pleased to have a conversation with me about my status. So I made an appointment and drove up to the campus. I went up to the president's office and waited to be admitted. He graciously welcomed me in and invited me to review my thoughts. At this point, I presented a series of conjectures about what I might do. I told him that I thought one option was to leave the United States and migrate to Canada, as many had done. I was well familiar with the country, liked the place, and had many Canadian friends. What I would do to earn a living once I got there, and how I would deal with a minor issue of never being allowed back into the United States were definite concerns. We went over a couple of other possibilities I don't recall. Then he more or less summarized my thoughts, adding, yes, and you could also decide to fulfill your obligation. That wasn't one of the options I had enumerated. In later years, no university president would have taken the step of suggesting to a young person that they might have an obligation to do something, and perhaps it was one they ought to fulfill. We were nearing the end of an era, but it was still possible for a university president, or at least some university presidents, to say such a thing at least to a student from some other university than his own. A light bulb came on in my head. Suddenly fulfilling my obligation to serve was a plausible idea. I thanked John Toll for his advice and drove home. He was right. Although I did not approve of this particular war, I recognized I had an obligation to serve the United States of America if called. I could not honestly claim to be a conscientious objector to war itself as I wasn't, and I had no history of making such claims. Soon after this exchange, I had a visit from a friend from Belport by the name of Chris Streit. Chris was a year or two older than I was, 
and he came over to tell me that my course of action should be obvious. He said I should join the Army Reserves with a six-year obligation. Chris was in the Army Reserve, and it was a piece of cake, he said. Chris was the kind of guy who always seemed to have things figured out. He eventually became a very wealthy New York stockbroker. There had just been a postal strike in New York City. President Nixon had activated the reserves to help deliver the mail. There was some minor error in drafting of the order, so that in return for a few days' work delivering the mail, reservists had a whole year knocked off their obligation. Well, I was convinced. At that time, although more than 500,000 soldiers were in Vietnam, few reservists were mobilized. Conversations with John Toll and Chris Streit helped me find a path forward. But I was still the former Oberlin student, almost entirely without guile or survival skills. Four years drudging in old literatures can make you that way. The only hope is finding the quickest possible exit. I went to Colgate for the summer session. When I got there, I opened a phone book and looked up Army Reserve units. Or the Army, or and not the Navy or the Coast Guard. Just say it was my limited imagination. The near, nearest Army Reserve Center seemed to be in Utica, New York. I called the center to ask if I could enlist. I was told they were at 110% strength, 10% strength and couldn't take anyone right now, but they would put me on their waiting list. Did I think of calling other units to see if there were any with open slots to grab before the draft swept me up? No. Why not? Well, I was already sold on finding this way to fulfill my obligation and wanted to avoid participating in a war that would never end that I disapproved of? I can't say. I completed the summer program at Colgate, took a few days away, and then began the fall semester. Some weeks went by, and I got a notice to appear at the Utica Reserve Center to take the Armed Forces written test. I drove up at the appointed time, arriving with 20 or 30 others. I remember seeing uniformed reservists around the center wearing the plain green uniforms of the, of the day with yellow chevrons of, sorry, insignia of rank on the arms. I did not even know a sergeant from a captain. I still had long hair. At one point, either a sergeant or a captain pulled me aside and gave me an angry lecture about my long hair. I quietly stated I would cut my hair if I could be in the unit. That seemed to appease him. But it grated on me considerably, and I pondered whether to just walk away and let whatever happened, happen. I had sense enough to reject that option. Acing the written test was no problem. Before long, I got a call to return for a physical. I did and passed. On January 24, 1970, I raised my right hand when, and with a few others at the LHU U.S. Army Reserve Center on Burstone Road in Utica, New York, with hair now closely cropped. I became a U.S. soldier, obliged to serve for the next six years. There was an interview with my new company commander, a big dour captain named Kevin Blaney, who did his best to be intimidating. He sat down with me, pondering long and hard at my folder, and said, I need drill sergeants. It's just like being a teacher. It was a momentary interrogatory glance. I nodded. Done. So those education courses meant something. I remember walking back to a classroom with a few others who enlisted at the same time. As we entered, one of the sergeants glanced at his watch and said dryly, Well, gentlemen, I see you've already served some of your obligation. Thanks partly to the suggestions from John Toll and Chris Streit, I had wandered into something that worked. I know them a great deal. To my considerable surprise, my Army Reserve career eventually proved very rewarding. Most of my college friends dealt with their obligation in craftier ways than I. 
Many got medical deferments aided by the connivance of a friendly MD, some found positions that carried deferments. Many lucked out in the draft lottery and never had to lift a finger. One enlisted, but then staged a crazy act and got himself discharged. A very few went to Canada. One or two took a hard road, such as a roommate of mine who refused even to register for the draft and went to jail. I regret I didn't help him find a better way. <laughs>